Hello and welcome to Workforce, a podcast where we uncover the science and behaviours behind things that happen in the workplace that impact your success, blending academic evidence and real life experiences. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Lorden, author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. Today, I'm talking to you about corporate Stockholm syndrome. While you might not have heard this term before, you may well identify with what it's referring to. I think we all intuitively know when something is wrong. We know that people can stay in their job, although they don't like their job. We live in a society where women are told and young girls are told to adapt, be pleasant, don't cause a ruckus. Definitely younger generations are putting up with a lot less in the workplace than, say, my generation and older. Before we dive into today's guest, though, let's say hello to Teresa Almeida, an awesome behavioural scientist from the London School of Economics, and get her to identify for us corporate Stockholm Syndrome. Is it ever rational to stay in a job where you are treated incredibly badly? So corporate Stockholm Syndrome is a term that comes from Stockholm Syndrome, which is used to describe the behaviour often observed in hostage situations where the hostages start to identify with and sympathising with their captor, even though they're mistreated because the punishment and reward comes from the exact same source. When we apply this to work life, corporate Stockholm Syndrome means being loyal and identifying oneself with toxic behaviour, such as hostile supervisors and organisations, or those in a business who might mistreat them. So why are you interested in this topic, Grace? It just reminds me of the Wolf of Wall Street. I'm quite fascinated by the idea that people are attracted to organisations where there is bad behaviour and then end up staying in them. I've met many people who end up staying for quite a long time. And I wonder if it's just because our jobs are multifaceted. So we have company brands, we have managers' personalities, we have our local teammates, we have the product that's put out there, the tasks of our own job, and on and on, these kind of other attributes mm. that jobs might have. So maybe it's something about that, that people, you know, will stay in quite a crummy situation if two out of three things are are good. That's what fascinates me. I've met so many people who complain that they hate their job, they hate their manager, they hate the toxic culture. But why do they stay? I find it interesting because you've, you're someone who's always looked into toxic workplaces. I think you kind of, you, you find it kind of fascinating and it's interesting to hear you talk about it. I think for me, it's also about the benefits so is there always this culture of like, you know, there's a perk or a benefit. So even if you've mm -hmm. had a horrible work week, then you go for a team dinner or something. You know, there's always an offset and maybe that's what keeps people in. Or it could kill your confidence, right? So I guess if you're exposed to quite a negative culture for particular people who put you down, you might actually believe that there's not other jobs out there for you. Mm. And, and human beings hate change. I, I don't think we can underestimate how much it actually takes to dust off your CV, put yourself out there and look for a new job. Yeah, it's really interesting. I also think that probably it thrives in silence. You know, if you don't hear from others and if you don't know what's happening, then mm. maybe you think it's just you and you don't speak up. Yeah. And you, you hear this over and over again, where once a story breaks that a particular team or a particular company is, is toxic, then people will say, oh, I identify with that, but weren't talking to each other at the time. So we've heard from Teresa. Now let's hear how corporate Stockholm syndrome is defined by Christian Hunt, who is the founder of Human Risk. So corporate Stockholm syndrome uh, is basically this idea that people get trapped within organisations and trapped in jobs that they don't necessarily want to be doing, but feel like where is where they should be. And they convince themselves that a, a situation that if they could look at dispassionately would see them leave actually means that they should stay. So is it more prevalent now as compared to the past? I think so, because I think people are feeling under a lot more pressure these days. And we know that when we're under pressure, we take don't always make the best decisions. 
Uh, sometimes pressure can bring out really good things, but often it can force us to, to sort of stick to the things that we know and, and the comfort blankets that we have. And so I think in a world where careers are becoming more questionable, you know, in the old days, you join one company and you stay there forever. Nowadays, there's a lot more flexibility. We have a lot more options. And so getting it right can put, you know, the, the, the sense of how do I get this right can put a lot more people under pressure. And so I think we see people staying there. And we also see organizations are getting smarter at keeping people on board. And we can see that through titles and promotions. And there's lots of lock-ins that mean that if you were you know, easy, if you, if you were wanted to be persuaded to stay, there are all sorts of reasons you can find and be presented to you that make, make it easier for you to, to stick around. So yes, I think it, it, it's, it's becoming, it's always been there, but I think it's becoming a more prevalent dynamic. So t- today you have a pretty impressive job, Christian, but I know you you left a traditional corporate type career at one point were you a victim of corporate stockholm syndrome it's funny you know i was i was looking back and and i with hindsight and i recognize that hindsight bias is a dangerous thing but let's create a lovely narrative for ourselves which is every three to four years i would change jobs uh either shifting employers or shifting jobs within the organization and i realized with hindsight that that was often driven by me and so I, I just felt the need to shift and change. And so stepping outside of the corporate environment, particularly at one stage, I'd worked in a family office. So that, that was slightly less corporate um, than some of the other roles that, that I'd had. It, it felt like a, it was about the right time to move. So the challenge wasn't so much, um, I'm, I'm worried about moving on to the next thing. There, there was a little bit of fear of stepping out into to working for myself and finally having to take responsibility for the money that I, I brought in, you know, the eat what you kill type logic. But um, I, yeah, I, I think with hindsight, I'd always been building to this. So when it actually happened, I wasn't as terrified as I perhaps thought I was going to be. So how do I distinguish between corporate Stockholm syndrome, someone staying in a job that they don't really want because they're addicted to the status which you have have, have described, and just somebody feeling a bit lackluster about their job. So is there always, because I, I guess because given the title, I, I assume that there's kind of some sort of abuse of the person. Maybe it's abusing their time. Maybe they're burning out. Maybe they're getting bullied. Maybe they're getting isolated. So I assume something like that goes goes with it. I, I think we all intuitively know when something is wrong. Uh, we're very, and when we know this in our personal relationships, we know lots of other situations that we can judge when we're not, we're not, something is, you know, our, our sixth sense tells us something isn't quite right. And then the question is, do, what do we do about that? Do we choose to ignore that? Do we override it? Do we compensate for it in some way, shape or form? Or do we, do we follow it? And so I think that the difference between the, the, the two things is if you're, if you're sort of feeling slightly lackluster, but generally speaking, in an, in an okay relationship, I think we, we know that. But the, mm. the, 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 you know, it's, it's when we start justifying it. And I always think it's a good idea to have a conversation with someone outside and have an, you know, somebody you can be honest with and say, how are you finding? And that's probably not your peers, even if you trust them, because they're playing the same game. You want to talk to someone, I always find, you know, whether it's your parents or a, a close friend that does something completely differently, where you can start to talk about it and then and analyze the language that you use and the rationale that you come up with and see what they think. Because I think we're very good at fooling ourselves, but we also know when we're doing it. And so we need somebody to help us to recognize that and be honest about it. It's funny. So I, I did some work um, recently with two of my colleagues, um, Yolanda Blavo and, and Jasmine Vera. And one of the one of the points was that 
employees are choosing not to come back to the office despite the fact that the C-suite um, are the C-suite are asking them to come back and it got covered by the Financial Times and it listed the companies who participated in the research and one of them contacted us and said can you tell us the employees who participated in your research which I actually was thinking for me it feels like they are definitely feeling corporate Stockholm Syndrome it just it was such a weird as if we were going to out them which I, I, I never would um, and I and I would have just written no, but Jasmine, who's much better uh, than, than I am, wrote something you know really nice about ethics and and that it would it would go against their ethics. But ultimately, there was kind of a moment where I thought this is really weird that they're tracking down people who have said something that's slightly different to what the company wants to say. I am still thinking about that company today. Actually, I also have a hunch that some people more than others are likely to be victims of corporate Stockholm syndrome. For example, colleagues who perform incredibly well are more likely to face political backlash and jealousy in their organisation if the culture is toxic. They may also want to stay because they are good at their jobs, ending up conflicted. I'm also curious as to whether there are gender differences in the propensity to experience corporate Stockholm syndrome. Let's ask Jess Olsley, a social media strategist and digital communications professional and a founder of We Have Agency. I believe that there is a lot of issues in the workplace because women and men are fundamentally like different in the workplace. We have to take into consideration in the workplace things that are happening to us, such as, you know, childbirth, if we opt to have children, pregnancy, you know, uh, menopause is another big one that happens to us, which causes a lot of repercussions in the corporate uh, world, which have yet to be addressed. Uh, I've read studies that uh, say that it's costing the the UK economy phenomenal amounts of money, and that you know suicide rates are at their highest in women in menopausal age. And these are things that are happening to us. We cannot separate them from the corporate environment because we spend most of our time there if we're employed, to be fair. So um, I think it happens to women a lot more also because of the simple fact that we live in a society where women are told and young girls are told to adapt, be pleasant, don't cause a ruckus, you know, don't stand out, adapt. And you kind of, it's, it's all of this kind of narrative that goes on in terms of what we as a society tell women. And when you're then trying to point out things that aren't working in a toxic male-driven environment, that's not going to be popular because you're pushing the status quo. You're trying to change something. And I think that that's really a difficult position to be in. And I think it happens to women more just because we are accepting of like, okay, this is what this workplace is. And in order to survive in this workplace, I have to adapt to this culture. And that is what corporate Stockholm syndrome uh, is in its essence, the, the belief that we can't change and have to adapt to what is present in our lives at that, at that time. I'm also curious as to whether Jess thinks people know when they are experiencing corporate Stockholm syndrome or if like being boys like a crab, it goes undetected if it advances slowly. I think that when you're in it at its most kind of central core, you're unable to see it. So you have this kind of blinkers on your eyes because you're essentially a part of it. And maybe it's a survival thing as well. So you're adapting. So I can't I can't change anything. And I, I recognize that. So maybe I just adapt to it and become a part of it. Or maybe it's not even that conscious that you actually just become part of it. And then when the blinkers are off, you can see it for what it is. 
So I think the answer is no there, but it's not easy when you're in the middle of it to see it. So it requires a little bit of work on yourself as well. And perhaps taking a step out and actually looking at the culture and saying, is this really where I am comfortable in terms of my values as well? Because I think the younger generation now, so I'm 48. So I think the younger generation, they are really realizing this, that they don't really adapt in the same way. I think it's more common with corporate Stockholm syndrome around kind of this age uh, than it is in the younger generation. When I work with them, I see that they're very aware of their own values, of their own mission. And when that clashes your own values with a culture, then you have signals straight away that this is probably not going to work out and this is not going to be for me. So it's hopeful. I see changes happening in the younger generation, which which makes me very happy. Everyone listening probably knows at least someone in their network who has experienced corporate Stockholm syndrome. But why do they stay? I asked academic Heidi Bechter, a researcher at the University of Newcastle in Australia, Alongside her colleagues, Heidi wrote a paper called Staying and Engaging in Work Against the Odds, Investigating Corporate Stockholm Syndrome, where they took a deep dive into the experiences of employees in toxic workplaces. Heidi is the perfect person to bring a rigorous evidence to my musings about corporate Stockholm Syndrome. We know that people can stay in their job, although they don't like their job. Like we know that for a long time and there would be plenty of reason why uh, we can explain that quite easily. So we know that if we do not take only the perspective of the elites, the talents or the privileged perspective, right? Like most of the time people go to work because they need money and they need money to sustain themselves, to sustain the family. Uh, so it's not so much about if they like that job, they just need a job. So the fact that they stay in a job they don't like is something that we can understand from a financial perspective, for instance, or from a guilt perspective. You have invested a lot of money into your education or your family invested a lot of money on you in your education. And now you feel forced to, you know, do that job, which is associated with your education and you don't like it, but you feel like you cannot really go backward. Some people might stay in the job they don't like just because they don't have enough opportunities they don't have the qualification to move around and to try something else Um, and some people might just stay in a job that they don't like because they feel stuck so it's really a concept of stuckness Uh, I can be for instance a single parent and I have custody issues so I cannot just say well let's go I just moved to a different country and I tried something different I can Maybe I need to take care of my elders, whatever that would be. Or maybe I need my the grandparents to help me with, you know, the childcare and all these kind of things so that my system can work. So, in fact, the satisfaction of the job is not necessarily as central as we thought it could be. Um, so all of this is just to understand that those people, they might have the intention to, uh, they might wish to to leave their job but they know they will never do it so it's just more like a dream of this job they don't like but they actually do not go away i have to say for me the most puzzling thing about corporate stockholm syndrome is when people choose to stay in organizations even when they don't have to when they have other options i asked heidi why and she had some really interesting thoughts on organizational identification let's have a listen There must be a reason why employees are willing to endure 
a toxic workplace. And this reason seems to be also the identification to the organization. It says, what my organization stands for is important to me. My job per se is only a very small part of what my organization does. I am part of something bigger. I contribute through my work to something bigger. And that bigger thing, no matter what it must be to each of us, uh, may be worth suffering a little. So if I give an example, I am a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle. My job is to do research, but also to teach and to supervise PhD students. Let's assume to speculate, because I could never complain about my university, that is <laughs> the culture of my university is toxic. Okay, once again, just to speculate. So let, 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 to help you out, let's speculate that my university is the same. So we both say it. Let's let, just speculation. Yes. <laughs> so um, let's assume it's, it's, it's toxic around me and such is the management around me. Uh, something appalling, making it hard for me to work, hard to, for me to do well and uh, hard to be at my best, uh, to stay motivated and to stay energetic and creative. Okay, Something is like dragging me down and it's just really difficult for me to do all that. Then why would I stay? Well, what would I try to do my best? Well, maybe for my students. Right. And it has nothing to do with my university. It has nothing to do with my managers, management and my leaders. Maybe I, I do this for my students. So at the end of the day, my, my students have nothing to do with the quality of the overall management of this place. Uh, if I have the heart of a teacher, if I strongly believe in education and the role of the universities at large, then I may still do everything I can to deliver quality teaching to my students. So it may be in the value and the meaning of the job as part of the organizational mission that pushes me to stay and engage regardless of the working condition. Uh, teaching is far from being the only example. Uh, employees working in the care industry, uh, not-for-profit organization, the health industries. I mean, the turnover of doctors and nurses is a big issue. Um, but also like some high-tech companies with very high innovation potential. Like you have this feeling like maybe what you're going to create could change society. So we could imagine like people like that, they feel like they have a mission that is bigger than just their working condition. Can I ask you, Heidi, when you're, when you're talking about why people stay in organizations, are people more likely to stay if their company's name is recognizable. So if you're in a big tech company that everybody recognizes, for example, or you're in a, a big financial company that everybody recognizes, or and or are they more likely to stay when labor markets are quite uh, loose, so it's harder for them to get another job? Or are you really feeling that you're held prisoner by a particular company when we, when we talk about corporate Stockholm syndrome? So I would say some are just a classic case of turnover. Okay, turnover, if I'm not happy with my job, I go but I go only if I can find a job. Very few people would take the risk yeah. to just, you know, quit the job and, oh, uh, wait a minute, there is, you know, the, the market is saturated at the moment. Most people would try to wait to find a job. So I have intention to quit my job. I would still have intention to have intention to, and I'm just waiting for a moment that, you know, there's a door gets open and I get a job eventually, but I would still have the intention to. 
the people we're talking about here, they have no intention to. They have no intention to, to leave. Yeah. The reputation of the organization, it might count. And that's one form of sacrifice, I, I guess. But something maybe a little bit more, I guess maybe I'm a bit too romantic, you know, with my mission and all of that. Um, but it might be important for your career, for instance. You know, if I work for Google as a classic example, it's good for my CV and I hate it because uh, it's just not me and I, I, you know, I don't like my boss, which is just like a bad fit with, you know, get unlucky with this bad manager. Um, but if you quit too fast, we know that you're going to look like a, a job hopper. Right? And that actually decreases your chance to get a job, an important, interesting job uh, in the next round. So for me to look a little bit serious, I need to stay for long enough, so to cope for long enough. But here again, we would expect that those people, they have intention to leave eventually, just not quite yet. Okay, it's too early. I need to be strategic a little, a little bit. Okay, I need to work for long enough before I go, but I still have intention to go. Here, I don't have the intention to go. I want to stay. What was interesting me in, in in the most recent tech layoffs, I don't know if you know this, but but people who were let go were treated quite badly in some of the American layoffs that happened in some of the big tech companies. And Twitter is a really good example where people were just told that they lost their job. Um, and on LinkedIn, people spoke incredibly well about the company, even though they have been treated quite badly. And, and it reminded me of kind of corporate Stockholm syndrome to the extreme, really, where, you know, um, they're still defending the company, they're still defending what they've done, even though they've been treated, treated horribly. Does that align with your research? Yeah, I guess so. So I guess people are still able to feel like there is a difference between LinkedIn and as an organization, and the people who treated me badly, were just people. Okay, so when I feel like I am abused by that manager, I can feel like this manager is not the organization. It's just one person that happens to be my boss, and that's very unlucky for me. But that doesn't question the validity and the meaningfulness of what that organization actually does. And it doesn't ruin all the fact that I contributed to that organization, at least for a time being. Okay, So now I lost my job. And the way I lost my job was not particularly elegant, but they might also probably identify when, when this happens, it's usually a change of strategy or like, you know, new uh, executive, new CEOs, etc. When it's like that, you feel like they still associate themselves with the old version of the company before the change and just someone just took over that company and ruined it all. So they make it personal toward that new management rather than the organization as a bigger thing. So how do we tackle corporate Stockholm syndrome at work and eliminate the risk of falling victim to this particularly unpleasant workplace experience? Let's go back to Heidi for her take on this. Well, we're academics, so we all know we're not the best people to give like an implementation of solution. And well, let, let's kill this, <laughs> the suspense. We know that there is no easy fix for that. Okay? There is no quick solution. Yeah. All you need to do is this. There is no magic formula uh, for this. But okay, if, we, if you had to try, I'd say that the working too much is probably the easiest, right? Like the overworking part. 
having a sense of how many hours employee work in practice. Okay, I think like in some, there is the work that you see, you know, people sitting in their office and now it's everywhere. It's on your phone, there's the emails and then you work from home. It's a little bit, it's, it's spread all over the place. So if you try to fully understand how much people work and to fully capture that and to try to understand, well, what can we say about the quality of work in this workplace? So once we evaluate that quantity, is it because do employees work too much because the quantity uh, that is supposed to be achieved is unreasonable? Okay, they have to do too much. Or is that because um, employees work too long because they're poorly trained? Okay, so they're not efficient. So what can we do if it's the case? Do employees work that much because the job is poorly designed? So we don't give to people the resources they need to be able to work efficiently. Or uh, do employees work this much because we are creating that hustle culture where we just feel good in showing that everybody's working so hard without any justification, just for the, the meaning of we working very hard in this place. Um, then not all the leaders are good, right? Not all leaders are uh, supportive and constructive, um, but a reflection needs to be made in relation to what we recognize and value in leadership's roles. So within those positions, we are collectively responsible in a way and collectively more attracted to strong leadership uh, in comparison to collaborative leadership. We're more attracted to competitive leaders rather than humble leaders. So here we need to reflect on we actually creating that. Like we systematically picking as we go higher in the organization, the most, uh, you know, pushy people, leaders like this, something that could lead to a, a culture that is more abusive and more destructive. So uh, this, again, is more about the culture and the meaning we give collectively to uh, leadership that needs strong evaluation and self-reflection. Okay, but let's try to be a little bit more concrete because this is a lot of existential thinking about uh, the culture of an organization is very difficult to change. So let's try to think, what can we actually do uh, a little bit more practically? So I'd say to promote a culture of respect to start with. So this means fostering a work environment where every employee, regardless of their rank, experience or background, is treated with dignity and respect. This is very basic, but you try to think, what do we do in practice and can we actually see that and do we value that uh, in the relationship in the workplace to encourage open and honest communication because an environment where employees are afraid to express their ideas the concerns the complaints can quickly become toxic but human beings are complicated. It is possible that you love your organization's brand and most of your colleagues and are treated awfully by a manager that elicits corporate Stockholm syndrome. I wanted to learn more about how someone experiencing corporate Stockholm syndrome may love their job or parts of it at least. To unravel such a complicated dynamic, I turned to Kelly Swingler, an author, speaker and coach who describes herself as a rebel ripping up the HR rulebook. Kelly has got bags of HR experience working in organizations. And so I knew she'd have a lot to say about corporate Stockholm syndrome. 
We talked earlier about whether people know they're experiencing corporate Stockholm syndrome, and I asked Kelly if an element of denial comes into it, with employees perhaps taking the blame more than they should when they receive bad treatment at work. We make excuses for it. Um, I, I do think, actually, since everything that started from, from 2020, I do think those things are coming to the forefront a lot more. People are calling it out. People are highlighting it much sooner and are definitely talking about it. And we, we're seeing that people are not staying in those sorts of environments um, for for as long or they're just leaving as, as soon as they witness it. So in some ways, I think that has been a very, you know, a, a much needed shift because for myself and many other people that I know, we've definitely stayed there for too long. But yeah, we, you know, you you don't want to believe really that you have put yourself in that situation or you excuse, you know, the, the types of behaviours from people. You know, if, if you had said something off the cuff, um, I might be, well, you know, maybe like, what, what's wrong with Grace today? Like maybe, maybe Grace has just got an issue. Maybe she didn't really mean it that way. Did I hear it correctly? Um, did I take it the wrong way? And very often, absolutely, yes, we put a lot of the blame on us. And some of that, I think, does come from almost kind of disbelief. Like, I genuinely can't believe that somebody would have said that or somebody would have acted acted that way. So maybe I I over exaggerated that that tends to be a, a very common, uh, common trait and and common behavior for, for lots of people, I think. Yes. And, and I think for others that do witness it all the time, they are then able to almost dismiss it as that's just one thing that happens it's isolated in that part of the business or it's isolated from that particular person whereas if I look at everything else you know if we were to look at a toxic relationship for example many people stay in toxic relationships because the toxicity is almost off-balanced by all of the other lovely stuff that's happening. So we tend to start to look for more of the lovely stuff rather than the toxic stuff that, that we're witnessing. So my, my background is, is very much in HR. I was I was an HR director, uh, worked in HR for a very, very long period of time. And, and um, as I said, just before we came on live, I, I did a talk on Friday to an HR audience and, and I was speaking to an HR audience the week before. There is something in certainly HR as a profession, I'm sure many other professions as well, was actually it is the it's almost the toxicity. It's almost the challenge that drives us to go to work for those organizations in the first place. Like if you offered me as an HR director a kind of housekeeping type role that where there were no issues, no challenges, I could just go in and everything was really smooth sailing. Actually, that might be a job that I would avoid because I just think I'd get really bored in that kind of environment. Whereas actually, if I've got an agency or a headhunter that are talking to me about this really challenging workplace, there is some toxicity, there's some culture change that needs to happen, there's leadership development, there's all of this stuff. Actually, that's the stuff that quite excites me as a professional going in, because actually, you know, I, I very much saw my role as in-house as, as being able to kind of turn those organisations around and, and make this big difference. So it's almost like you kind of know what you're walking into, and then actually, whilst you're in it, certainly from my experience, I didn't, although I knew and I'd been told it would be a challenge, I hadn't realised just how toxic it would be whilst I was actually in there. But there was still this driving part of me that thought, I, I can turn this around, I can make the change. 
And I think that's what it's like for many people, particularly if we are, you know, really we've been recruited, we've been employed to, to go in and help fix it. We almost become obsessed then with the toxicity and everything that we can do to, to try and turn it around. So one of the questions I had for you is, is it more prevalent now as compared to the past? And I'm wondering, is there also a generational aspect where people of younger generations are less likely to put up with negative events in the workplace as compared to people who are older generations? I don't think it's necessarily generation. Definitely younger generations are putting up with a lot less in the workplace than, say, my generation and older but I, I also sit, you know, for the things that I think back to, for even, you know, things that I, my mum was having to deal with in the workplace. Now, I can remember, uh, what, you know, back in, in the early 80s, my mum was developing in her career. Uh, you know, my mum had basically been told, you know, if, if you know, if you want your next promotion, um, you're going to have to get on and, and get your family finished. You know, basically, if you want any more kids, go go and do it. Or you're not going to get your next promotion. You know, that was in the early 80s. Would I have stood for that when I started in the workplace in, in kind no. of 2000s? Absolutely not. But also, I think I, I have always challenged things. I've always questioned things. And again, you you know, I, I don't know if I would have done the same if I weren't in HR, but I have always called a, a lot of those things out. But I do know people my age, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I know people in their 40s. I know people in their 50s, their 30s and their 20s that are calling much more of, of this stuff out. And it's I think it's almost like we were waiting for permission to say this is no longer acceptable. Whereas, again, when I started in my career, kind of late 90s, early 2000s, as you said, it was a lot of it was brushed under the carpet. It was accepted. It was just, you know, it's just mm. that person there having a bit, having a bit of a joke. And whilst it would make you feel really uncomfortable in some situations, there wasn't really the you wouldn't necessarily have got the support if you had called that behaviour out. But I think as we see more people calling it out, it's almost like all of us now have the permission to say. This is unacceptable. And so I'm seeing that across all of the generations, not just the the younger ones that are coming through. So, Teresa, we are from the same generation, but opposite ends of it. Given you are much younger than me, I'm going to ask you to speak for all of the youngest millennials. Are you less willing to put up a corporate Stockholm syndrome than older people? I don't think I should speak for every younger millennial (laughs) is is my first point. (laughs) But I think maybe in my generation, or maybe I don't think, but I hope that we found that a lot of these perks are actually not beneficial as much. So, you know, we talked about the free lunch and the the big slide that happens at Google. And maybe we know now that that's just a way of keeping you work longer Mm -hmm. and hiding some of the biases and problems that exist in these toxic workplaces. So I think I hope that my generation has kind of found a way around this and is more aware that corporate Stockholm syndrome or something alike to that can happen. I think the early days of of free lunches and um, it was a Bouncy Castle rather than a slide, Teresa. I think so, there's a slide. Is there a slide too? So slides and Bouncy Castle. I think the early days really was trying to get people to think of their social networks as inside work as well. So building teams through those kind of social networks. So can I take it from what you said? You think that people should have these separate lives now, have separate friendships that sit outside work? Yeah, and I think there is greater transparency. So before you join an organization, you kind of know what it is to be in that organization, glass or reviews, yeah. speaking to others. So I guess what I hope is that my generation and also yours, because we are both millennials, 
can, before joining a job, know what actually means to be a part of that organization and also what it means to leave that at the end of the day and do something else. Yeah, I, I do wonder, though, with corporate Stockholm Syndrome, if some of this comes down to the individual managers you're exposed to in the workplace. So maybe your workplace is good or, or 40% good or 60% good, but you just get kind of a crummy manager and then you can feel that you have to stay. So if there's a there's a lure maybe of a good brand. And then next to that, there's this crummy manager who's not who's, who's not advancing you. And I, I, I can see that could be a struggle of conscious. That's interesting. I almost think that if there is a manager, you're more likely to leave because that's a person you can point a finger and say, hey, mm -hmm. this is why I'm not progressing because of this person. But if it's something about the organizational culture or the way things are done, it might be harder. Yeah. Well, I think either way, what we agree on is that if you have a crummy manager, you should leave. You yes. should maybe go somewhere else in the organization or if you want to go somewhere else entirely. But definitely, definitely don't stay stuck. So I remain to be convinced that any generational differences actually exist when it comes to corporate Stockholm syndrome. But just in case you or someone you know is struggling to take the next step, let's get advice from some of our brilliant guests on what they could do. My top tip for people, if it's an abusive relationship, then you want to think about getting out as quickly as possible. If it's, but if it's just a case of I'm not totally happy here, one of the things that we can do is we can start to take control of things. And your, you know, your book is great on this, is think about what works for you. Because ultimately, your employer could always make you redundant uh, with very little notice, right? So the, relation, the relationship isn't all about we're both in this for the long term. They can get yeah. rid of you. So you've got to look after yourself. And so one of the things is if you have decided that you want to, to do something else is take advantage of the opportunities. And if you reframe your existence as about being, what can I get out of this? And you do what you need to do to keep your job, but treat the job like the side hustle and then work out. And there are plenty of opportunities, particularly in larger organizations, where you can go and do training courses that would make no sense whatsoever if you were sticking around and playing the game, but could be brilliant for you. You can meet all sorts of interesting people that can help you bring the springboard. And then that leap needn't be anywhere near as dangerous because you can do that when you've built up something that works for you as opposed to just playing that corporate game. And shifting out of the game and recognizing that you have an opportunity, there's you know, lots of opportunities within organizations for you to learn things that are useful to you in the longer term. And so this fear of leaving is, is often because I'll suddenly be find myself on the other side of the door and I won't know what to do. Work that out and then you can, and there's plenty of opportunities to do that. I really truly just hope that if somebody out here who's listening to this, who is realizing that, okay, they can't maybe identify with corporate Stockholm syndrome, but perhaps they can identify with being in a toxic culture. The message I really want to get across is that life is short. We don't have a guarantee of a tomorrow. And if there's any part of you that feels like work is not working for you in some way or another, then there is always a way. Um, I, looking back, wish that it hadn't taken me such a long time to realize that the prison that I had built up in my own mind was only there. It didn't exist. There was another way of doing things and that we are capable of so much more than we believe that we are so much more. That is my experience. Um, and if anybody there is thinking that this applies to them and they're just fundamentally not happy and there's a niggle there to address that uh, because you can do so much more go and work for a business that you believe in in a positive world culture there's tons of lovely businesses who are doing amazing things and you can find another way life is too short to be stuck in something that you don't believe in and that fundamentally doesn't make you feel good 
So, Teresa, what do you think about the advice that we've just been given from our guests on what you could do if you are experiencing corpus Stockholm syndrome? I really like the idea of going outside of your network to understand other people's experiences. I think that makes it more tangible. It makes the, the fear of leaving probably smaller because it's you have an alternative. And going beyond people you know also means you might be exposed to an entirely different job or an entirely different career that might make you more happy. How about you? Well, I will refer people to my article, What to Do If You Hate Your Job in the Financial Times. But just in case you don't have time for that, you know, I do I do agree with Teresa. Be proactive. Um, you can engineer luck quite easily by expanding your networks. You know, when we trace back these pivotal moments in people's careers of things that went right as well as they went wrong, it usually comes down to a person or people who they've met, a manager or people in their networks. So if you're having a terrible time, you mightn't feel like it, but really do get out there and work the networks that you have to get some more opportunities, but also expand your networks. It just really, really is, it really is so important. I guess something that we've not talked about is that if you're on the verge of corporate Stockholm syndrome, you might be able to actually change things from the inside. So I do see maybe not my generation, but Gen Z are way more likely to speak up and say, you know, we need to fix DNI, we need to fix, fix some of these things, and they're willing to take the initiatives themselves. So I think that's also a good point. I, I would love to, I, I love the idea of people fixing things from within. And I, I'm always someone who speaks up. But the one thing that I will say is we see lots of people who have spoken up in their workplaces and really not, it, things haven't gone, things haven't gone so well from them. So this needs to be a strategic calculated move. And if you can bring others with you. So if you're in a really toxic workplace, it's going to be other people who are experiencing the same thing. Bring them along with you. There, are, There's always going to be strength in numbers. Um, and once again, if it doesn't work out, do leave. Just do not stay stuck. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We can only squeeze so much in from our guests into the final edit of each episode. So we wanted to make sure you have access to more highlights of these brilliant contributors who have helped us to bring you this episode. Therefore, highlights from the conversations of all of today's guests are available to watch on my YouTube channel. Please head to the show notes for where to find those or follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram where I will be posting the content. A huge thanks to Jess Audsley, Christian Hunt, Heidi Vector and Kerry Swingler for their time and thoughts and also to Teresa Amida for simply being awesome. This is the bit where I plead for your support. Please give us a helping hand in getting this podcast in front of many more listeners by subscribing, rating and reviewing wherever you are listening to this. We'd also love to hear your questions and ideas for future episodes. And you can contact me anytime through my website, www.gracelorden.com. I am your host, Dr. Grace Lorden, and I hope I've earned the privilege of your time. Bye for now.